and welcome to episode 14 of Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. A few months ago, we had a massive spring clean of our office, which has for many years been overflowing with filing cabinets, loose papers and the like, and we decided to free up some space and move a large proportion of our archive into storage. And in preparation for this, we thought it would be a good idea to photograph and digitise some of the key records. In the E to G filing cabinet, there was a very thick folder with the name Peter Fryer on it. And as I got the camera out and started taking photos, it quickly became clear that we were sitting on a real treasure trove of old documents relating to Fryer and to his book, Staying Power, The History of Black People in Britain. The scribbled list of attendees for his book launch in 1984 is one highlight from this bundle. C.L.R. James, Salman Rushdie and Paul Gilroy all have big blue ticks next to their names, so presumably they were in attendance on the night. It is October, which also means, of course, that it is Black History Month. So it only seems fitting that we celebrate the new edition of Staying Power today in our discussion. I'm Chris Brown, and I'm joined by Brechna Aftab from Pluto's editorial team, and a special guest who we're honoured to have with us here today, David Olisoga, a broadcaster, historian, and author of many award-winning books, including Black and British, A Forgotten History, which was published by Pan Macmillan last year. So, David, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. It means a lot to us. Um, Anyone who's seen a copy of the new edition will notice your names on the back cover alongside CLR James's for having provided an endorsement for the book. So clearly it means something to you. But when did you first come across Staying Power and what effect did it have on you when you read it? I bought it from a shop in Newcastle when I was 16 years old in 1986. I bought it two years after my family had been driven from our home by attacks by the National Front. Um, a moment in my life that I probably spent a decade recovering from. And Staying Power was part of the recovery process. I think it's the first book I ever bought with my own money. I just got my first job working as a, a sales assistant in a sports shop. And this was the first sort of adult venture into a bookshop with my own money that I'd earned for my own work to buy this book that... I didn't know it was going to be there. I wanted to find something that gave me a warrant to exist, to be in Britain, after suffering really quite profound sense of rejection, that I shouldn't be there, that I shouldn't exist, that I couldn't be black and British. And I just hoped that there would be a book that would arm me with a history, with a narrative that would be a defence for that. And I found myself being emotional, feeling emotional, talking about this, because it was that important, because the book might not e- not easily have existed, and it didn't have to be that good. But the fact that it was there on the shelf, and the fact that it answered so many questions, and it became from then on a lifelong relationship with this book, means it was an important moment in my life. I never met Peter Fryer. I really wish I had, because I would like to say thank you. And I've met hundreds, I mean, literally hundreds of black people who have talked about similar stories about what that book meant to them, what finding it on the shelf and it being there and his words being there for them, what that meant. So what I wanted to ask was, what was the broader significance of this book at the time, creating this sort of counter history that placed black people's struggles at the center of British history, why was that so important, highlighting the experience of black people and their place in British history? I think what was so significant about the book was that it was 
a direct, detailed, new encyclopedic rejection of the idea that you couldn't be black and British. Now, we've got used to that phrase, black British. We hear it all the time now. It really wasn't heard when I was growing up. And it really did suggest an impossibility, a dualism that couldn't be. And I was constantly told that you're not British. I was constantly made to feel like an outsider. And the idea that there had been people in these phases of history from which they were 100% absent in everything I was taught at school, the fact that there was an alternative history that populated these eras of the past I was being taught about with people like me was incredibly empowering. And to the extent that I almost at times remember thinking this all can't be true, that some of this has got to be wrong or fabricated or this is wishful thinking because it was just too good to be true. I think it's very difficult for people who don't remember that period in the 80s to remember or, or to relate to the extent to, to which you were an outsider and you were made to feel like an outsider. And when that conceptual rejection, that verbal rejection was reinforced as it was in my case and the case of many, many black people from that period with physical violent rejection, then this book was a place of retreat, a place of comfort. I remember reading this book with scars on my body recovering from having been attacked, having been beaten up. And I remember that that feeling of being in my room and the physical recovery. And all I ever did as a child was I read books, I went to the gym, I weight trained, I did martial arts because I was in a state of war because I lived in a violent nasty, unpleasant world that didn't want me. And this book was as important to me as my cheap rubbish weights bench and the things I had in my martial arts lessons. It was part of my arsenal to defend myself. I suppose one element of the book, which is quite a large element, is the history of slavery in the UK. And that's probably a, a most sort of apt example of the sense in which black history is an integral part of British history. And yet, even to this day, even, you know, 35 years after Fryer's book was published, well, we don't learn about it in the way that we should, and we don't consider it, or every aspect of it, as British history in the way that we should. I'd be interested to hear more from you about the way that things are still sort of omitted in the narrative of our own history. Well, the ignorance that I carried around with me before I met Fryer, I think, was relatively typical. I did not know about the British role in the Atlantic slave trade. The only other cultural artefact I'd come across that discussed slavery was roots. And I knew, thought I knew, that American slavery was this global phenomena, and I did not know there had been a British slave trade or British slavery, and I didn't know anyone who told me different. Now, my mother may well have told me, and I might have just not listened, because my mother certainly knew, but to have Britain placed in this story was one of those moments where lots of things started to make sense. I didn't understand really who West Indian people were. I was brought up in Newcastle. The Most of the black people I knew were West African and they were connected one way or another to the university in Newcastle. And I didn't know that many West Indian people and I hadn't quite understood what their journey was. My school taught me nothing about this. 
And the reason I couldn't stop reading the book was chapter after chapter, phase after phase, century after century, the things that you needed to know to make sense of who you are, where you come from, where the other black people you know and encounter come from, began to fall into place. It is everything that I wasn't taught at school, condensed into one book and delivered into my hands. And it wasn't just about identity. It was about making sense of what, of Britain and, and how it got so rich, why there are West Indian people here, why Jamaican music was the only music I wanted to listen to, who these people were, what they'd been through. None of the world made sense. I made a program many years later um, about Indian indentured labor, and I had exactly the same reaction. That's why there's Indian people in East Africa and South Africa and Fiji and the Caribbean and Guyana. Without these bits of knowledge, without these interstitial moments of history, without these stories we haven't told, the demographics of the world don't make any sense. The demographics of Britain, the culture of Britain, the economics of Britain doesn't make any sense. I realized as I read this book that nothing, the fundamental basics of who, what Britain was, what it had become, and how it had done it, had not been taught to me. So even if I had not been half African, even if I had not suffered racism, even if I'd been a white kid who'd never thought about these sort of things and never had to think about these things, the book would have been illuminating because it made sense of things that were unsaid. And so much was unsaid when I was a child. So many important things that you just in a practical sense needed to know to make sense of Britain weren't said because we didn't want to talk about any of it. And we didn't talk about the practical elements of it because we didn't want to talk about the difficult elements of it. So what I find truly fascinating in this book is the vivid detail through which Fryer describes how British capitalism truly rested on the slave trade. And I wanted to ask you how slavery set the wheels of the Industrial Revolution and British capitalism in motion so that everything we have today, the economic system, the political system that's in place today, traces back to this foundation. Well, what, what Fryer did was what Eric Williams had been doing, and he built on that work, of trying to do the thing that we're really bad at doing in this country, which is linking what we call colonial history with mainstream history, to link the parts of history that we like to talk about, like the Industrial Revolution in the Northeast, where I was brought up, that's all we talk about. That's everything we did in history was about the, the Industrial Revolution, to show that that is not disconnected from the world that's happening out in the empire. We have this cognitive dissonance because American slavery happened on the American continent, on American soil, the slave markets and the plantations, the lives and the deaths, the beatings and lynchings took place in America. There isn't that, that geographical distance which allows for an intellectual difference. There is in the British case. And so to a lot of people, the idea that what happens here is influenced by what happened there, that the money that generated there comes back here, had again been lost and obscured. So that work that Fryer was part of and that he reported on is still ongoing. We're still trying to work out how much the slave trade, slavery and the sugar business and compensation at the end of slavery, how much that generated the capital that became critical to the early stage of the Industrial Revolution, to the railway boom um, of the early 19th century. We're still trying to piece this all together. But there is no question, I think, now that this money is significant to the investment in British industry, British infrastructure, and to the development of the empire in the 19th century in India and elsewhere. And 
those ideas, those economic ideas, as well as ideas about race, identity, and racism, were just as important to me. Because again, the world doesn't make any sense trying to explain how it was that these these adventures overseas, as they were often described to me as, how they had a practical financial economic impact on Britain. That again was nothing I was aware of, had thought about before. And can you comment on how racism, this coherent ideology that developed from all of these like fragmentary racial prejudices, served a political and economic purpose? So this ideology developed almost out of the fact that it was making money. It was making British people a lot of money. And so they had to create this whole kind of system to justify what they were doing to black people. Well, along with, I often talk about staying power introducing me to this pantheon of black Britons that I hadn't known and that have been with me ever since and that I've had a relationship with because then going on to read their memoirs and read about them, those who didn't write. And Equally true is it taught me about people like Edward Long. It taught me about the architects of British racism. And those introductions, although a lot less pleasant than meeting Equiano uh, or Mary Prince, are just as important. Because I remember being in discussions when I was a kid and people would say, did racism justify slavery or did slavery come out of, of racism? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Racism is not the same as prejudice. It's not the same as being nervous of people who are of a different culture or physical differences. Racism is a system there. It's part of an economic system. And it was created. And there's a great liberation in knowing it was created because we know it was made. We know it can technically, in theory, one day perhaps be unmade. But that, seeing how it was built, seeing how racism was constructed and meeting on the pages of Staying Power some of its architects was incredibly important and illuminating. And as I said, this book was part of the weaponry I built around me, along with going to the gym and doing martial arts and, and becoming political. And so there's that phrase they used to use in the Second World War, know your enemy. I met my enemies on the pages of Staying Power. And hating your enemy is a useful thing. And knowing who they are and learning to direct your anger towards the people who are responsible for these systems is instructive and useful and healthy. It's so important to me, this book. It was a lifeline. I lived on a council estate when I was a kid. And then we moved to a house that was our kind of first nicer house. And we were driven out of it by a racist attack. I constantly had experiences of violence. As a teenage boy, I was beaten up by men in their 20s and 30s. I still carry the physical scars of those experiences. And this book answered so many questions. And this book enabled me to answer their questions that I was part of this history and part of this history. I am here. I belong here. This is my country as much as theirs. It was critically important. And the thing about racism, racism is about everything from humiliation to hospitalization, but the indignity of racism, how embarrassing racism is. That's something I think a lot of people don't realize. The embarrassment of not being able to answer the questions when people say, you're an immigrant, go back home, you don't belong. Having no answer to that makes the humiliation, which is critical to racism, it's part of its power, it's humiliating and disempowering. Having answers to those accusations was as empowerful as growing the muscles that I could punch back when I was attacked. And it was the same process. It was intellectual training. I want to ask you how one can kind of negotiate their 
identity um, in a context where, you know, you've grown up in Britain and you've adopted all of these cultural models. You have adopted sort of music and literature from this country. And yet there is this sense of persisting exclusion that has this like, constant psychological impact on you. How do you kind of navigate that situation where you feel British, but you're not really British? With difficulty and with permanent collateral damage. Um, there's not any surprise when we look at the figures for psychological illness among the black population as to why. There's this concept that's been developed in America of racial weathering to explain the high stillbirth and uh, miscarriage rates amongst middle-aged African-American women. That phrase is perfect. It's weathering. You're weathered by racism. You're weathered by exclusion. You're weathered by having to say the same stuff over and over again. Toni Morrison said the power of race is that it stops you doing your work. It stops you doing other things. It's constant and it's damaging and it doesn't go away. These days it affects me less in physical senses. It's less about kind of what felt like a physical fight for survival when I was a kid, but it doesn't go away and it is damaging. And this is the reason why racism has to be fought and has to be resisted intellectually and through knowledge is that it's bad for you. It's really, really damaging. Sorry to be not, not, not optimistic about it because it doesn't <laughs> go away and it hasn't gone away and I'm sure Peter Fryer wouldn't have expected it to have gone away. But it's still there and it's still a, a, a daily experience. And it's negated and it's it's ignored and it's it's your problem and you're imagining it. And you have the same conversations and the same scenarios over and over again. And people think if you have any success that it goes away and it doesn't affect you anymore. It doesn't. It's there. And my library, now I have lots of books, then I had you know a few, is part of my cocoon that I go into to stay sane. But I think it is actually an active job to stay sane if you're black and British because the forces that will wear away at your resilience and at your mental health are there and they're constant. So this year is the 70th anniversary of Windrush and it's also the year that the Windrush scandal broke out and the public grew aware of the terrible consequences of the hostile environment policies. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the significance of this book in this context where people seem to be celebrating a multicultural liberal Britain and yet we're seeing that these kinds of things are happening, these kinds of terrible things are happening. Well, I think it's a critical book on that because of the time it was written. It was written three years after the 1981 Immigration Act. And it's those series of immigration acts from 1948 and the British Nationality Act up to 1981 that are the the foundations, that, that's the soil out of which the hostile environment, its dark flowering occurs. That panic, that unexpected influx of non-white people into Britain, black people using the rights that they had before 48 and that, that were reaffirmed in the 48 Act, that slow shutting of the door, which is incrementally achieved through each of those immigration acts, is something that Fryer lays out. He's also writing after the riots of the early 80s, which is a generation of black people who weren't immigrants, who are rejecting the position that they've been pushed in by the society and don't have that sense of belonging somewhere else or passing through that their parents had. I was born in Nigeria, so I'm probably somewhere in between, that I had some sense of I came from somewhere else, but not much strong sense of wanting to go back to Nigeria because it was not it was only a place I had infant memories of. But that generation that had nowhere else, they reacted in profoundly differently. 
the seeds of the Windrush sandal are, are sowed in those acts, but the the mentality it comes from is again back to that simple thing that you can't be black and British. And if you look around the discussions in government about the panic around the Windrush, the dislike of what's happening, the desire to shut the door, it is about that definition of Britishness with whiteness that the two things are equatable, that blackness and Britishness cannot be brought together, that they can never be a black British identity. And Fryer's very good at laying out how those two things are happening, the closing of the door and the refusal of the generation born here to accept the role that they have been allotted, irrespective of their skills or their education or their personal qualities, they have been allotted somewhere. You have to remember the moment that this book comes out of. You have to remember what was on television, the comedians who were deemed to be okay for a Christmas television program, the comedians whose jokes were in the in the public consciousness, the sort of things that were said, if you go and look at the archive of those riots, it's now shocking. It is as if a British army of policemen had fought savages on the streets of South London, and they are treated as these fallen years. It reminds me of the Victorian iconography after Isandwana, or one of those that one of those battles of the Victorian age. The way people spoke about black people as being a problem, as being people who, through some sort of lapse of thinking had been permitted to embed themselves in this country. You felt like you were regarded as an infestation. I remember reading Camus' The Plague and feeling that's how they see us. They see us as an infestation. Mm. Obviously, the lived experience of black people in Britain differs from that of, say, African-Americans. How do British attitudes to questions of race and, and British racism therefore differ from, say, that American context? And what are the historical reasons for that difference? Well, I mean, there's a strange thing about British racism. I mean, there's, and America's pertinent to this, is that we've always been very good at looking at American racism. We've always liked to look at the American context, look at American civil rights, look at American slavery, and take sides in that story. And I think there's a cultural echo in that of those 30 years between British abolition and the American Civil War, that we got very used to the idea of seeing ourselves as the moral light in the world, and America as this, this, uh, this corrupt republic. And that's only possible, of course, if you forget that most of the cotton from the Deep South goes to Lancashire and those mills and one in five people in the 1850s in Britain is working in the cotton industry dependent on slave-produced cotton. But we've managed to do that. We've managed to look at this phenomena through the prism of the American experience, which is why I honestly did not know there had been a British slave trade. I may well have been told, but it didn't register because it didn't seem possible because that was an American story. That sense of Britain being better than other countries, is, I think, one of the sort of cornerstones of British racism. When you bring up the empire, well, it wasn't as bad as the Belgian Congo. You bring up slavery, well, it wasn't as bad as what the Americans did or what the Brazilians did. There's always this, this comparative ability to brush it aside. Everyone was doing it. At least we ended slavery. That giving ourselves a free pass as a nation by comparing ourselves favorably to other nations and other phenomena of hiding the story of slavery behind the story of abolition by privileging the story of William Wilberforce rather than that of any slave trader. That's fundamental in British slavery because it's permitted a lack of self-analysis. We've been really bad at being honest about 
how deeply embedded racial thinking was in British society and in various moments of British history. There were an awful lot of people who will be upset and challenged and defensive if you point out how racialized the empire was. 44% of people still apparently have pride in the empire. Wasn't that the, the recent, was it a YouGov poll? It was a few years ago. A few yeah. years ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, my argument to that is we don't know enough about the empire to to make that judgment. Now, I know what I think, um, but I, I challenge people to say that we do teach enough and learn enough and read about it, but the empire to come to a, a rational conclusion about it. But also this sort of, this good, bad, weighing it up in the scales mentality isn't very healthy. We ask lots of countries, particularly Germany, Japan, Italy and Russia, to confront things that it did in its history. We expect them to not celebrate parts of their history that are problematic. We expect them not to celebrate figures in their history. And I'm not just talking here about the Third Reich. I'm talking about Prussian militarism. I'm talking about Italian fascism. I'm talking about the greater East Asian coast prosperity sphere in the Japanese case. We expect them to look at their history and see darkness as well as light, to see things that should be lamented rather than things that should be celebrated. And we're very bad at applying the same rules to ourselves. We look at history as a place to be comfortable. It's a warm bath. It's a place to feel good about ourselves. And we don't want to look at the the bad things. And so when people are confronted by them, they will... I think sometimes honestly say, oh, that's all I hear. I'm sick about hearing about it, as if this is a constant refrain and it's an everyday experience. I'm always being told by people who know nothing about slavery that we're always talking about slavery and that they're sick of hearing about it. And the question I always put to them, if you know so much about slavery, if it's so constantly part of your daily life and your frames of reference and every conversation with black people, name a slave trader. Not someone who's famous and happened to be a slave trader as well. Name someone who's a slave trader. Name a famous plantation slave owner. Name a black abolitionist. Not William Wilberforce. They can't. Name a slave ship. Name a plantation. You can't. You can name concentration camps. You can name members of the Third Right. You can't name any of these people. That's because we don't talk about it. And it seems like we are talking about it because the defensiveness when we do is so profound that that's what's remembered. The discomfort is remembered, not the details. We don't talk about this stuff. And so British racism is steeped in a sense of just wanting it to go away. That if people stop talking about it, if we can convince ourselves and convince black people that we live in this post-racial colorblind world, that they'll shut up and we can get back on to celebrating the Tudors and Churchill and the Second World War and not feel bad about ourselves because history should be this place we go for an emotional mental holiday. Not this place we go to ask serious questions about who we are, what we've done, where we're going and why we are who we are. I wanted to go back to your point about this hysteria around immigration, and I think you use the words black infestation. So Peter Fryer talks about these stereotypes around black people. They're lazy, they're lustful, they're greedy, savages. And it was covered by this like pseudoscientific kind of language mm -hmm. to give it this air of intellectual respectability. I want to ask you how these kinds of stereotypes still persist today and justify exclusionary nationalist attitudes? Well, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who says openly that they admit to these prejudices. Most people will reject that sort of crude 19th century racism. 
But I think it's still there. Not with everybody by any means. And I think there's a real risk of pretending there hasn't been progress when there's been an enormous amount of progress. And anyone who remembers the 80s would have to say that. But there is still ways in which this manifests itself more subtly and I think more subconsciously. What Fryer and others who were writing helped us get to is the point we're at now, which is not an easy point, but it's a point where we understand the ideas of institutional and structural racism, where we can understand that people cannot be openly and overtly and proudly racist and still act in ways that damage non-white people. I think we're beginning to have a more sophisticated conversation and the history and where this idea came from and the history of the idea that shows that it is an idea, that's been really important. And I can't think of a book that I've read by a black Briton that doesn't quote Fryer. I can't think of a black writer who hasn't got a relationship with this book. I know Akala has, Afiwa Hirsch has, I see the quotes in Remy Adelodge's book. You can't go into this world without at some point needing to refer to Fryer because he did so much work for us. He did so much digging. He introduced us to people, to ideas, and he offered us clarity. He showed where these things came from. He laid out, with the time he had, because it's a huge book covering a huge span, but it's still, he laid out the frameworks of how this idea developed, how it emerges from racism, how it clothes itself in pseudoscience and then pseudo-social Darwinian clothing. This was critically important because you can't fight an idea unless you understand its mechanism, how it works. And I think we are now at this new phase of getting to the point of saying, now we need to show how this works. We need to strip away the exterior housing and show the cogwheels moving and show that good people can act in ways that are based on racial thinking because it took hundreds of years to establish and to create this machine and to dismantle it, we need to understand how it works. And we need to accept it's going to take a long time to dismantle it. But it was built and it can be unbuilt. When you read Fryer's chapter on the development of racism as a more structured ideology, um, as opposed to the race prejudice that we've talked about, it's coming along at a time where there's a sort of an imperative from capital as well. The development of the slave trade requires the development of this alongside it. How much do you think the economic basis of racism is still a thing. When people talk about decolonization, what they're talking about is coming to terms with the fact and seeing openly the fact that the world order was created to advantage those people who built that mechanism and that the reasons why Africa is in the position it's in is not accidental. The reason why the West is able to strip resources out of certain parts of the world, the reason why China is able to take that model and apply it to its development is because that's how it was designed. The machine works because the designer designed it to do that job. Beginning to see that is the other sort of development where we're at now. I think decolonization is a difficult phrase which comes out of an academic discourse and I think it doesn't do us very many favours. But understanding that the world was created by the people who had the money and the power to do it, that it's not accidental that any of this happens, is one of the great breakthroughs that was happening. I mean, you have to mention Edward Said and others. But again, I think it's an interesting moment we're at. I think we're beginning to understand how racism works in our own societies structurally and institutionally. And we're beginning to apply that same thinking and take in thinking from Orientalist writers like Said and look at the world in that sense. I'm not sure we've got the best language to do it. For example, 
I wonder, speculate, whether the Roads Must Fall campaign would have got further or had more support if it had used a language that was more narrative about who Rhodes was and what he did and less intellectual and less conceptual. But that conceptual view of the world has been critically important. And again, I think Fryer's books and others were critical in helping us getting there. That's very interesting because Peter Fryer's book wasn't just a dry academic exercise. The word that you used was that it provided you with an arsenal of sort of ideas and concepts that you could challenge. At the heart of this book was this um, practical drive for changing the system and creating a better future. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that a bit more, like the use of narrative language and the use of a different kind of language for bringing about true change. The great thing for me about the book, or one of the many great things about the book for me, was that it was so readable. I was was 16. Um, I would have struggled and did struggle with um, books written in an academic argo. And it was so readable. And it was... The the writer, um, Adam Hochschild, says people are interested in people first and foremost. And I think the strongest thing I remember about reading that book for the first time was being introduced to these people. And that was powerful. And in some ways, I think Fry was very, very clever because he... He introduced you to people and then you learnt what they were doing in the wider struggle. But you learnt it through people's experiences rather than through the political ideology and the, and the political theory. Now, I know it's there. And as I got older, I could see it's there. And I totally understand where Fry is coming from and obviously have learnt more about him. But it was at moments almost allegorical because you met these people as people and you discovered their stories and you wanted, you wanted to know them. And you wanted to know more. My great experience of reading those books is wanting to get hold of the narrative of the life of Willard Aquiano, wanting to get hold of Sancho's letters, wanting to know more, not wanting to get to the end of this book, wanting to hear these voices. I remember seeing, and it was actually pre-internet, it was quite a long time later, seeing the portrait that we believed at that time to be Aquiano, which is probably Sancho, and seeing... A black Georgian was a truly emotional experience, much more than intellectual. It was a sense of kinship that I'd never felt. And by then I'd known I'd wanted to do history. And I'd known they were there and I knew their names and I'd read their words. But to look into Equiano's eyes or Sancho, it's one of these people whose voices I met and I can see him. And it was just beautiful, but I didn't know to go looking if I hadn't been for Friar. I wouldn't have known he was there to be found, to engage with in a way that you only can through through great portrait art. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the issues that Friar must have encountered and, and indeed yourself must have encountered as a historian researching the stories of these people's lives, researching black history? There must be a lack of written sources. How difficult is it to write a book like Staying Power or indeed to research on these subjects? Well, it's much easier now because we have staying power, um, which is why everybody quotes it. My friend Jim Walvin, who wrote Black and White, The Negro in English Society, which is around the same time in the 19... It's, so it's earlier, much earlier than, than Fryer's book. It was his PhD dissertation, um, a book which is often underrated and should be seen alongside staying power. That book, uh, Jim Walvin told me that when he began that research, he literally wrote to all the county archivists in Britain and said, do you have any black people? Because it was that 
fundamental the work that needed to be done. It was an act of salvage. I call it historical salvage. And I wrote in my own book about how being able to to flesh out these stories because the the skeletons had been put on the stage by Friar, and I could I could decide to skip things or miss things or go deeper because the foundational salvage work, the work of drawing these people out of their historical shadows and into the light, so we could see them for the first time, that was done by Friar. You cannot write about this stuff without needing to go to that book because it is it's the foundational text. I can't imagine how difficult it was, and I can't actually imagine how he did it without having staying power to go to. It is encyclopedic. Now, there's lots have happened since. We've learned new things since. Obviously, it's an old book now. But everything, in some ways, all roads lead back to Peter Fryer. And Peter Fryer's own road leads back to the 22nd of June at 1948 when he was there to welcome in the arrival of the Windrush. So that the book that gave the people who came off that boat and those who came after and people like myself who came from West Africa and Southern Africa, the thing that gave us a sense of permanence was born out of a moment which is the symbolic beginning of the post-war migration uh, communities. And it's wonderfully symmetrical and appropriate that Fryer was there. And he was there to record what many people thought was the beginning and to show that it wasn't, that it was a new chapter in a longer story. It's, it's what you would write if it was a screenplay. You'd have him there. And you think, oh, don't worry, it's not historically accurate. You need it for narrative functions. So it is just perfect that he was there. Mm. That's not a bad idea if there's anyone listening that <laughs> cares to turn it into a screenplay. This is maybe an unfair question, but is there one story in the book that has really stuck with you? Yeah, the 1919 race riots. Because that's, without wanting to exaggerate what me and my family went to, the idea that you could be turned against, the idea that you move into the wrong house, you brush up against the wrong person, and you can be attacked and singled out and what it is like to have a mob outside your house. I experienced that as a 14-year-old boy by the time in 1984. And to read two years later about the lynching of Charles Wooten in the Liverpool of 1919 and what happened in the other port towns... It put it in perspective and it made me what I am, which is what I think all historians are. I'm someone who's fearful of who we are and what we're capable of. And that's why I don't like loose talk about being radical and revolutionary without realizing what it means. I don't have a, an ideological, intellectual, ivory tower view of this stuff because I've seen a flash of it and only a flash. And I would never claim that my experiences are even unusual amongst black people of my generation. But I have experienced it. And this stuff's dangerous. And these ideas are really, really incendiary. And you can arm yourself against them, but you should never, ever for a second comfort yourself with the idea that they are controllable or they are naturally descending and fading away and we're on some sort of teleological path to a brighter world. History goes back and forward. We can slip back and forth. Reading about those riots... And that title, Racism as Riot, was really important because that was a lynching of Charles Wooten in a city I then later went to university, in a city I lived in. And I've you know, been to those docks and I've thought of Charles Wooten. To realise that that happened in the lifespan of my grandparents put my experiences in perspective. Are you worried about Britain getting worse for black people today after Brexit and 
after the rise of sort of fascism across Europe. There's a historical speculation that we can't learn the lessons of history beyond the lifespans of those who lived through them. And if we were going to learn, forget, I should say, the lessons of the 1930s and 1940s, it would be about now that the amnesia would be kicking in. So I hate it when dark historical theories appear substantiated by events, but they do appear to be. And the big danger is that we start normalising things. Um, We start normalising people writing in newspapers, describing immigrants as cockroaches and vermin, that we normalise an American president who can't condemn the Ku Klux Klan. And I think we are beginning to normalise these things. And that absolutely terrifies me. There was a moment, and here it's compulsory to say that people voted for Brexit for all sorts of reasons, not just racism. We know that. Everyone who's read anything about it or thought anything about it knows that. But there's also a lot of people for whom this enabled what they saw as a return to the good old days of Britishness and whiteness being equatable and blackness or non-whiteness being the opposite of being British. Now, I experience just on social media, which is far better than on the streets, as some people did, the backlash of Brexit. And it was people who felt empowered and emboldened and and enabled to say things and take stances and send pictures and phrases that they wouldn't have said before that vote. It did show that we weren't where we thought we were. And there's two events of recent years that I think you have to see them together. One is that moment after the Brexit vote, when those sorts of voices were amplified. And then there's the 2012 Olympics and the opening ceremony. And I I think that's a really important moment because in that opening ceremony, alongside all of these other moments of British history, the foundation of the National Health Service, the suffragettes, the First World War, the Industrial Revolution, there was a mock-up of the SS Windrush taken around the Olympic Stadium and the volunteers who took it were dressed in the sort of baggy 50s suits and the leather suitcases. And I remember being absolutely emotionally overwhelmed by that moment because it was a vision of a Britain in which our stories and the stories that Fry gave me were part of the main narrative. And that big thing of not seeing this as black history but seeing this as history, as our history, as a shared history, that seemed to have been delivered to us in this kind of incredibly beautiful, poignant pageant by Danny Boyle. And it was a moment when... The journey that I began when I read Staying Power seemed to have, we seemed to be getting there. And I think I carried that memory around in my mind for too long and invested too much in it and believed it too vividly. And that's why for me and a lot of people, the voices that emerged out of Brexit seemed to hurt more because we had done the thing I never thought I could have done when I was 16 and I'd let my guard down. How do we counter racism today? beyond reading narratives like Friars, how do we combat the the insidiousness of racism as it continues? We need to see that racism isn't always about bad people doing bad things. It's about structure. It's about, another word I don't think is very useful, privilege. But it is about understanding how it works. We need to show, we need to demonstrate to people who are very often good people who just don't understand what we're saying and don't see how things that happen and things they might even be involved in happening, how they impact on the lives of people around them. It's not obvious. It's sophisticated racism. Another thing I learned from Fryer, it's clever. It took a long time to create. It's intricate. Its impacts are complex and intricate as well. 
to try to bring people along with us and not fight people always. There are some people have to be fought and should be fought. But to bring people along with us and say, look, this is what it does. And I know you don't mean it. I know in your heart you believe in equality and justice and equity. But these things do happen and they happen in our society. And something can be not your fault, but it can still be your responsibility. And people, I hope, will be open to that idea of shared responsibility like shared history that we can't have a society that is functional and healthy if the life chances of some people, millions of people, are shaped by an ideology born out of slavery centuries ago. And we wouldn't want to live in that world. But too often the reaction is defensive and hostile and rejectory. And I think sometimes we're not careful enough in trying to show how complicated and how how powerful structural racism is. The easy bits we've done well at, it's obvious that what people did on the streets to my family and almost every black person of my generation I've ever met, that that was violent and racist and destructive. It was clear. And the people who helped me get over that, most of them were white. And they could see that. It's harder to explain how structural institutional racism works. We're not great at complexity. Um, We're not great at nuance. We're great at impact, moments, events. We've got a real challenge in explaining how racism works, how it damages lives, and how it's not about blame and finger-pointing and people being bad people. It's about the foundational ideas that are deeply, deeply held within our society, things that seem invisible to people being exposed. And it's about a choice. Do we want to live with that or not live with that? Are we happy to tolerate that? And similar things are happening with gender. And I'm trying to be optimistic. I'm trying to think that what's happening, the backlash, is happening because we are, we are getting somewhere. But not every day. Some days I feel like the 16-year-old in bruises in a council estate reading Staying Power to strengthen myself. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. For anyone that's interested, Staying Power, The History of Black People in Britain by Peter Farrer. There is a new edition out now. It was published just last month. And you can find that online at plutobooks.com and as well as at all good bookshops. So do go and get yourself a copy if you can. You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month. (laughs) 